I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant You, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024. And grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. Hello, my cauliflower cousins. We at Plant Strong are still in the joyful afterglow of our annual Plant Stock event, the celebration of all things Plant Strong. I want to thank everyone who joined us last weekend. What a plant party we had. Man, it was a blast. And it is incredibly rewarding to see so many people actively engaged and participating in our live stream events. And if you happen to miss it, no sweat, we'll be offering a full event replay along with our special collection of 48 delicious and innovative recipes in the very near future. In some other big news for our diehard <laughs> Rips Big Bowl fans, you can rejoice. The Rips Big Bowl Banana Walnut and the Dayton Raisin are back in stock as of like a few days ago. If you love cereal as much as I do, you'll be delighted to hear that our multi-grain flake cereal is now 30% off when you use the code multigrain30. Make breakfast easy. Head over to plantstrongfoods.com and stock up today. And I think this is important. Like I said, this world is not going to be saved because one person at a time makes the connection and opens their heart and changes their consumption patterns. We know that. And it's also important to know institutions are made up of people. People are hardwired to feel empathy. And research has shown that, that the vast majority of people genuinely want to live a moral life. They want to feel that they're living in accordance with their core moral values, practicing their integrity, which is, by the way, why we go through all of these mental gymnastics in order to eat animals, because we need to feel good about what we're doing, and we don't feel good about what we're doing when we're participating in carnism. 
I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plan Strong podcast. The mission at Plan Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, class is in session. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a new word that I guarantee 95% of you have never heard of, but it is something that the vast majority of Americans participate in every single day without even knowing it. That word is carnism. My friend and today's podcast guest, Melanie Joy, coined the term in her work as a Harvard-educated psychologist specializing in the psychology of eating animals, social transformation, and relationships. Now, what exactly is carnism? It is the invisible belief system in our culture that conditions us to eat certain animals and not others. Her book title actually sums it up perfectly, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. I mean, think about it. From birth, we're conditioned to believe that cows, chickens, pigs, and fish are simply food. And here in America that dogs and cats are pets. We don't even question it. And the fact that this belief system is so ingrained in our culture is, in fact, carnism. But the tide is turning as people are waking up and becoming more aware that, A, we don't have to consume animals in order to thrive and survive. B, there are better and more humane ways to treat animals all of which deserve our utmost respect and dignity, and C, we simply don't have to act against our core values as empathetic human beings. Awareness is, in fact, the first step, and with awareness, we are better able to think freely and act compassionately and to create healthier and more fulfilling relationships in a more equitable and sustainable world. This is what Melanie and I discussed today, so I would encourage you to listen to today's episode with an open heart and an open mind. I completely understand that these topics are difficult and can be very emotional, but real change comes from people like you, Melanie, and me when we aren't afraid to start the conversation and advocate for a more compassionate world. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Rip. How are you? Um, I am as well as you can be, you know, given, given all the circumstances that are going on, you know, in the world right now. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I was actually just thinking the last time I saw you was at your place. Um, I think it was four or five years ago. I think it was 2017, if 2017. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. That sounds Plans- right. That's right. And that was great. That was such a great experience. It feels like such a long time ago. So much has happened in the world since then. Um, It has. It has. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but I really appreciate you coming on the Plant Strong podcast because, you know, one of our goals here is to get is or, or to uh, spread the, the good news about, you know, people eating more plants and less animals. And I can think of no no one better to have kind of a conversation that reminds us reminds us of who we are really connecting us back to our true sense of our behaviors and our values and how those are kind of a little bit misaligned right now when you really look at it through the right lens. And I want you to help us deconstruct kind of our whole practice around eating animals. Um, and, and, you know, obviously I, I read this book over the weekend, why we love dogs, eat pigs and wear cows. And it is such a spectacular piece of work that you've put together here to really help us understand what is is invisible. And then once you kind of expose people to what is going on at a horrific magnitude, it's like we should not allow this to go on for another second. Um, so I want to I want you to talk about you know this in great detail. But before we do, I, I, I want to ask you just some some lighthearted questions because this can get pretty intense, listener. Uh, but well, well worth it. And that is, so where are you right now? Are you in Germany? Are you in Boston? Where are you? Well, first of all, thank you for the very kind words and the warm welcome. And I think the world of you and your family and the amazing work you're doing. So it's really a pleasure and a, a true honor to be here having this conversation. So I just want to say a big thank you. And I'm so happy to be here. Um, and I am in Berlin, Germany right now. Yep. It's uh, about eight o'clock my time, which is your six hours earlier, I think. So it's yeah. midday for you. Yeah. What's, so what's the vibe like in Berlin, Germany these days? Um, it is, yeah, I mean, things are have been reopened for a while. The vibe is um, slowly kind of getting back to what it had been, pretty active. Um, my husband, Sebastian, and I um, live at the very outskirts of Berlin. We're in, we're literally the last... Um, the last condo, the last house number in Berlin proper, which mm. means that we are in an area that looks a lot more like a village and we're on the edge of a forest. So the vibe here is quite calm and it's uh, the beauty is really, the natural beauty is really spectacular. Yeah, yeah. I drove through Berlin once in the 1990s and uh, it was beautiful, it really was. Very some, green. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I went to some spectacular castles and and other things. Yeah. Um, so, but you you grew up in the states, correct? Oh yes, I have lived yeah. in Germany for a little over eight years, but I'm I'm American, and yeah, I grew up on the <laughs> East Coast. Uh, most of my life, I was in Boston. Yeah, yeah, and so you grew up. Were you? Um, did you have brothers and sisters? Just tell me quickly about your family life. Um, I have one brother, one biological brother and three stepbrothers, actually. So, um, and, you know, I'm in contact with my family. I have a very good relationship with my family. Um, it's a little bit of a challenge being across the ocean and uh, having to get on a plane if I want to see them. The biggest challenge is less the distance and more the time difference, because yeah. when they're having coffee, you know, yeah. I'm at my end, the end of my day, especially for my friends and, you know, 
colleagues in, in California. But uh, yeah, I miss I miss the East Coast in particular. I miss the States, mm. but I'm ha- very happy living here in Europe because it's easier to it's easier to be healthy in a lot of ways. Um, we bike everywhere. There's a lot less driving. It's very bike friendly. It's easy to be outdoors and exercising in parts of the States. It is you can actually live without a car, um, but it's not quite as easy as it is here in Europe. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm just, I'm curious because I, I want to know a little bit about where your passion for this subject came from. And for example, like growing up in your family, were you guys vegetarians? Were you vegans? Was this something that you sought out on your own because mm-hmm. you saw something and you were, you know, like changed forever? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you asked that. So the book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows, my work, my organization, Beyond Carnism, which emerged from the book, and then the later books that I've written, all of this really emerged from my life experience, which started pretty early in my childhood. Um, And so my family was not vegetarian. They were not vegan. Um, Some of them are now. Um, but, But really what motivated me looking back is that I was always a person who, you know, cared about animals. Um, I would never want to cause them to suffer, especially when that suffering was so intensive and, and so completely unnecessary. Um, and of course, like most people, I grew up eating animals. Um, and, you know, I, I also had a dog who I loved like a family member. And, you know, over the course of so many years and so many meals, I never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand while I ate, for example, a pork chop with the other, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as sentient and intelligent as my dog. I like just didn't connect the dots between the meat on my plate and the living being it once was. Mm-hmm. I was also very health conscious most of my life too, and I wasn't connecting those dots either. Um, but what happened was that in 1989, I got really, really sick and everything changed. I ate a hamburger that turned out to have been contaminated with Campylobacter, which is like the, the red meat, the salmonella of the red meat world. And I was, I ended up hospitalized. Um, I was on intravenous antibiotics. And after that experience, I just never wanted to eat meat again, not because I had made any, you know, sort of ethical decision, but you know, when you're just incredibly sick, like the last thing that you've eaten, you just don't want to touch. Mm -hmm. So I became a vegetarian at that point, sort of by accident. So this was back in the eighties, right? It was 1989 and there was very little awareness of veganism at all. Um, so I became, I was, I was 23 at the time and in the process of learning about how to cook for myself, how to, you know, eat as a vegetarian, I of course stumbled on information about animal agriculture and what I learned shocked and horrified me. I just, I could not believe the extent of harm being done by this, this industry. Um, I mean, to, to, to animals, to the environment, to my own body, but What shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They'd say things like, you know, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. Or they'd call me a, you know, radical, hippie, vegan. I quickly became vegan after learning about the horrors of the dairy and egg industries. You know, a radical, you know, vegan hippie propagandist. And 
these were my friends and family. They were rational people. They were compassionate people. They were health conscious people just like myself. So I became very curious as to how caring thinking, ordinarily thinking people could just stop thinking and just disconnect from their natural empathy when it came to this issue of eating animals. And that was what led me to do the research that I did and ultimately to, to write why we love dogs, eat pigs and wear cows. And so, and so that uh, emanated from, was it a uh, doctoral, doctoral dissertation that you did? I, yes, I, I ended up um, enrolling in a, in a doctoral program and I studied the psychology of um, a psych program and I studied the psychology of violence and nonviolence broadly. Um, and then I narrowed the focus of my doctoral thesis, my dissertation to the psychology of eating animals. And this was what led me to recognize um, what I came to call carnism or to identify what I came to call carnism, which is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. And that's what I talk about and why we love dogs. And so carnism, is that a term that has been out there or did you actually invent that term? Uh, That was a term that I coined um, during my doctoral research. Yeah. So it's, I mean, what I, so what I'd love to do like right now is help us understand carnism and how we live in this society that kind of really embraces carnism without really knowing it. Because as you say, it's so invisible and it's so not talked about in a way that to me is, is at all accurate and brings to the forefront the amount of murder, violence, damage that happens on a massive level. So where do, where do we start? Well, we can start with a little thought experiment to Please. help people get an understanding of, of this concept of carnism. So imagine that, imagine that you're not vegan. You're not, you don't eat plant-based. You, you, eat, you eat meat and you're biting into a juicy hamburger and your dining companion turns to you and says, Rip, you know, that hamburger is not made from beef. It's actually made from golden retrievers. Right. Now, chances are what you had just thought of as food, you now think of as a dead animal. What you had just Mm -hmm. felt was delicious. You now feel is disgusting. And rather than continue eating the hamburger, you probably want to throw it in the in the trash and maybe even take to the streets in protest. This is because you haven't been conditioned to think of golden retrievers as edible. And therefore, your reaction to the idea of eating them is your authentic reaction. You are connected. You are seeing more clearly. You're not looking at this, you know, meat and seeing food. You're seeing dead animal and you're more connected with your, your natural emotional response. So carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat Mm -hmm. certain animals. It's essentially the opposite of veganism. We tend to think that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system. But the only reason that we may learn to eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because we do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. When eating animals is not a necessity, which is true for many, though not everyone, many people in the world today, then it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And choices always stem from beliefs. But this belief system is, is invisible. 
So when people are eating animals, they don't even realize that they have a choice, that they're making a choice. They're just doing what they've always done. They're just doing what they've been conditioned to do. And of course, carnism exists in all over the world, in media and in cultures around the world, people learn to classify a small handful of animals out of thousands of possible species as edible. All the rest we learn to classify as inedible and therefore disgusting and often, often even morally offensive to consume. And so even though the type of species consumed changes from culture to culture, Members of all cultures tend to see their own choices as rational and the choices of other cultures as irrational and often disgusting and even morally offensive. So really what it all comes down to is we're conditioned. We're born into this mindset. We're born into this belief system that teaches us to think of certain animals as edible. And with these certain animals, you know, when it comes to these certain animals in the United States and the West, for example, pigs, chickens, fish, cows, for example, we learn to distort our perceptions when it comes to their flesh and the products procured from their bodies so that we don't see them for what they are. And we therefore disconnect from our natural feelings and we therefore eat them. Do you remember, Melanie, it was a couple of years ago, I think it was in Great Britain where there was news that broke out that uh, that a certain amount of horse meat was being used in their burgers and everybody was absolutely appalled. Right. And right. so that to me is a perfect, a perfect example of people not being accepting of, well, it's fine if it comes from a cow, but a horse, forget about it. You have crossed a line. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's really important to be aware of is that, Carnism conditions us to act against our core values. You know, most people's core values include compassion or caring and justice or fairness. Most people would never support unnecessary and extensive harm to animals, you know, for, for absolutely no reason. And yet most people support carnism and they do this because they don't realize, because basically they've been conditioned not to think, not to ask questions. Most of us never ask why we eat certain animals, but not others. We never even ask why we eat any animals at all. And then something happens like, you know, this example that you're sharing and people are shocked. Often people only see carnism. They don't even see carnism, but they see, you know, they become aware of their reaction to carnism when something interrupts their sort of normal process, right? Where suddenly it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not eating a cow. I'm eating a horse. And there's very little difference between horse meat and cow meat. The difference is our perceptions of horses and cows, not horses and cows, and certainly not the flesh, um, you know, that becomes meat. Well, and just to kind of take this to the, another level or give more examples, like, for example, I think you talk about in the book how in, in India, I mean, the cows are very sacred and they don't they don't eat their cows there. Right. Uh, I think it's Vietnam you know, it's very common to eat their dogs there, if I'm not mistaken. And, and it, it, well, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, it, it's common in some countries to eat dogs, but not their dogs. And this is really important. And this is really interesting. So the first foreign language that Why We Love Dogs was published in was Korean. And I went to South Korea to give talks about carnism. And one of the things that was so striking is that people were 
not everybody is supportive of eating dogs in, in South Korea. I mean, there's a, a whole movement against it, and it's a, only a smallish percentage of the country that does eat dogs. However, they don't eat all dogs. The idea of eating dogs is not necessarily offensive to a number of people, but the idea of eating a Maltese is offensive. The idea of eating your pet is offensive. The idea of eating a pug is offensive. And this is true here in the West as well. People eat pigs, but most people would not eat their pet pig or their pet chicken. Yeah. And and you, you in the book, you talk about, I think it's an, ex, it's a exercise that you maybe have done with your, with your students and you recommend that we, you know, the reader do it. And that is like, what are some of the reasons why you're so accepting of, um, or why you wouldn't want to eat your dog and why, you know, what do you think about a pig? And for example, you know, dirty, sweaty, you know, clean, not clean, intelligence level. And then you go through that and you realize how we have been basically brainwashed into thinking one thing about a whole, you know, category of animals that is like not even close to the truth. Like, for example, pigs. Can you tell us a little bit about how pigs are actually, uh, if anything, more intelligent and cleaner than dogs? Well, you, I mean, you said it and you said yep. it well, and that is the truth. Um, pigs are intelligent. They're sensitive animals. People, I mean, this is one of the reasons that people sometimes keep pigs as pets. Um, pigs are not the greedy, lazy, dirty, you know, animals that we're led to believe that they are. And, um, and of course, if we realize the kinds of animals pigs really were, you know, that we, if we recognize their sentience, um, it would be much harder for us to support the extensive violence against them that is carried out under carnism. And, you know, you, you bring up a really important issue when you talked about us being, you know, kind of, you used the term brainwashed. Really what happens is that, as I said earlier, most of us, uh, you know, would never willingly support a system such as carnism. You know, in, in, if you think about it in just one day, more farmed animals are slaughtered than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. I mean, this, this number is staggering. Mm-hmm. And the extent of the violence is such that even if it were reduced by 90%, it would be 10% too much for the average person to want to support. And yet most people support carnism through their daily food choices and their actions. And the reason this happens is because they don't realize what they're doing. Carnism, like other systems of oppression, uh, is structured to make sure that conscientious, caring people who are rational act against their caring and against their rationality without realizing what they're doing. It does so by using a set of psychological defense mechanisms. These defense mechanisms distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our natural feelings so that we act against our values, against our own interests, ultimately, and the interests of others, without even realizing what we're doing. And do you think this is something that there was some master plan to create, you know, create carnism? Or is it something that just kind of has evolved over the last 75, 100 years to where it is today? Well, this mentality is something I think that has evolved over many, many years. Um, and it is not, there. most people, like the system that is carnism is 
self-perpetuating, essentially. It's self-sustaining. And most people who, who participate in carnism have no idea that they're participating in carnism and they're keeping this dysfunctional, essentially, system alive. Some people do actively try to keep it alive, and those are the carnistic industries and carnistic businesses that stand to profit or continue to profit off of, off of um, you know, people's choices. So I can give some examples, if you want, of these carnistic defense mechanisms so people know what I'm talking about. I think that would be really helpful. Yes, yes. (laughs) So there are a whole host of different psychological or carnistic defense mechanisms that we use. I'll share share a few of them. Um, One of them is um, abstraction or sometimes called de-individualization. It doesn't, you don't need to know this word. Basically, what happens is that- Is this the cognitive trio? This is the cognitive part of the cognitive trio. So when we're born into a system such as carnism, carnism is widespread. It's so widespread. It's what's called a dominant system, right? That means that it is so widespread that its beliefs, its teachings are, are invisible. It's really like woven through the very structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. Um, and it's, it's institutionalized. That means the beliefs of carnism, the assumptions of carnism are embraced by all of the major social institutions, um, government, business, uh, religion, nutrition. When we study nutrition, for example, we actually study carnistic nutrition. And when we're born into such a widespread system like this, we end up looking at the world through the lens of carnism and it affects mm. our perceptions. Can you give me another example of something, not carnism, that has like an ideology that is pervasive throughout our culture? I think yeah. you, meant, you mentioned like uh, patriarchy or feminism or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll just for, for listeners yeah. explain what I mean by this defensive abstraction. Um, yeah. we, we learn to think of farmed animals as lacking in any individuality or any personality of their own. So we learn to think, for example, that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. Or we learn to think of farmed animals as objects. This is another defense, objectification. So when we are eating chicken, we say that we're eating something rather than someone. So these are distancing mechanisms. They distance us from the truth of our experience, essentially. Um, And we also learn to believe in what I call the three ends of justification, that eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary, Mm. Um, Arguments that have been used, of course, to justify violent practices throughout human history from, you know, male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. So getting back to your question, um, carnism is structured like other systems of oppression or oppressive systems like patriarchy. Some people think of patriarchy as, as sexism. It's it's important to recognize that the victims of each set of um, of each oppressive system will always have an experience that's unique. I don't want to compare the suffering of the victims because people can find that very offensive. At the same time, it's important to recognize that these systems, patriarchy, classism, racism, you know, and so on, speciesism, right? They all are structured in a very similar way. And most importantly, they all stem from the very same mentality. The very same mentality that drives us to carry out harm against farmed animals or other animals is the mentality that causes us to support exploitation of 
humans and harm to humans. So it's really, really important to recognize this because when we do, we recognize that when we're trying to create a better world for anyone, we can't simply just look at who is harming, who is oppressing or abusing whom. We really need to look at how and why we oppress and abuse in the first place. We need to look at this oppressive mentality that we have inherited. So those, you mentioned those three, those three ends, normal, natural, and necessary. Um, so let's just try and dig into some of those a little bit deeper, like necessary. So like, what do you mean by necessary? Like what most people think you need protein and the only place where you can get protein is from meat. And so therefore, you know, I'm justified in doing it because otherwise I would wither on the vine and die. Exactly. And, and the end of necessity, I believe is the most important end that keeps these oppressive systems that keeps carnism alive um, and oppressive systems in general alive. When we believe something is a necessity for our survival, right? For our very survival, then we're willing to do all sorts of things um, that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And if you look at atrocities that have been committed throughout human history, they've largely been made possible by convincing the populace that not supporting, that supporting the, uh, the atrocity is necessary for the survival of the race yeah. of, you know, the, in this case, the species of the nation. And so, you know, when we believe that eating animals is necessary for human survival or for human health, that gives us basically a free pass to do whatever we need to do because that becomes eating animals becomes an act of self-defense, basically self-preservation. And it becomes ethically, you know, neutral in a sense. When a necessity becomes recognized as a choice or even becomes a choice, when a necessity becomes a choice, it takes on an ethical dimension that it didn't have in quite the same way before. And I think we can see that happening now that more and more people, you know, thanks to people like you, Rep, and your father and your family, you know, really helping people recognize that it's it's not necessary to eat animals to survive or to thrive. In fact, it's necessary to stop eating animals. And more and more people are waking up to this reality. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are becoming increasingly ethically uncomfortable with the idea of eating animals. Mm-hmm. You have a quote in in the book, and it's actually by Adolf Hitler, that says, make the lie big, make it simple, keep saying it, and eventually they will believe it. And that, you know, that to me is just so, it seems so true. Uh, And that is, that's what's going on to me today in in several different things, right? Uh, Including carnism. How do we so how do we pierce the veil here of carnism and how do we get, uh, I mean, obviously talking about it, uh, reading about it is, is to me the first step. But what, what I found really fascinating when I was reading this book is if you, if you don't ask the questions and you're not presented the information, this argument, then because I think we're so indoctrinated and habituated into this, this world of carnism, it's almost impossible for us to see into the carnism matrix in order to pull ourselves out of it and see, oh my God, look at, look at this. This is the most incredible lie that's been perpetuated 
for you know decades and look what it's doing to our personal health the planet's health the animals we love and also to all of the just the collateral damage right with and and the workers that are being numbed and you know you do a great job talking about it here but so back to my question is uh, how what's the best way to bring somebody out of this matrix well, I mean, and, and you're right, it's, it's, it's one of many incredible lies, right, that have been told to us and we have inherited and, um, and, and supported without knowing what we were supporting. And, and it is huge. You're right. It's vast. This carnistic machine, you know, is carnism is, is institutionalized, as I said. So yeah. how do we change something that's existed for so long and that's really saturated through society? And absolutely the first step is absolutely awareness. Um, and it's especially for people, I mean, raising awareness of carnism is very, very important because when we become aware of the system and of the defenses that we have internalized, we're much less likely to be hijacked by them. Mm. One of the challenges um, with raising awareness of carnism is that carnism conditions people to resist anyone or anything that would actually get them out of the carnistic box. So I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this, you know, who have tried to, you know, whether you're talking about eating plants for health or eating plants because of concerns about animal welfare, you've probably experienced opening your mouth to talk about what you think is a very easy quote unquote sell and having the person you're talking to resist with a lot of defensiveness, you know, saying things like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, which is what people used to say to me when I first tried to talk about my experience when I became vegetarian. Nobody wanted to hear what I had to say. And they would actually get angry at me for, for trying to share information with them that would actually help them have better lives and help them participate in creating a better world. So raising awareness is very, very important of carnism. We have a lot of videos on our website, short videos, a lot of materials that are sort of bite-sized and easily digestible at carnism.org. I think it's also very important for people who are, um, who are already eating a more plant-based diet and, you know, who are already in alignment with vegan values, you know, are clearly in alignment with vegan values to learn how to communicate about this issue in a way that reduces the chances or I should say that increases the chances that their message will be heard as they intend it to be. And this is a huge part of the work that I do and that we do at Beyond Carnism. I've written a few books on, uh, two books on effective communication and relationships. And one of them is specifically for people who are communicating across this vegan, non-vegan difference. But learning the tools, the principles for effective communication is so important and can be so life-changing no matter who you are and what you're talking about, but certainly if you want to be a part of helping shift, a part of transforming carnism, it's very helpful to be empowered to talk about this issue in a way that's effective. Yeah, and if you if you don't have the the communication skills to make it happen, you're probably, as you said, you're probably going to fall on your face, and people are not going to want to hear it. And so you have. What book did you write that actually um, helps people with that communication style? Is that Beyond Beliefs? Yeah, well, one of the books is Beyond Beliefs, which is a guide to improving relationships and communication for vegans, um, uh, vegans, vegetarians, and meat eaters. Um, 
And the other one is just called getting relationships right. And getting relationships right is not specifically about communicating and relating around this carnism, non, you know, carnism, veganism difference, but it's around, it's all, it's a one-stop guide to building relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And it includes a lot about communication. Mm-hmm. Is you, do you actually have a online class that people can take or something like that? We do. Um, we have our Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy has, mm-hmm. we give in-person and also online trainings and courses to anybody who wants to be able to talk about this issue or improve their communication more, more broadly, um, or even just live more sustainably as somebody who is not eating animals in this world that is you know, in this dominant animal eating culture. So people can come to um, carnism.org or veganadvocacy.org. And we have a a lot of um, materials, videos, courses, trainings, um, and we're putting up more bite-sized materials on our website over the coming months. Fantastic. So do you believe that we live in a democracy or a metocracy? A metocracy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a little, it's a hybrid model at this point. Um, I mean, there are so many vested interests in maintaining the carnistic status quo. So much money funneled into, you know, the carnistic industry um, and institutions. It's really staggering. And it's, you know, and this is one big part of the problem as we, you know, more and more people, thankfully, are becoming aware of you know, not only the dangers of eating a carnistic diet, but the imperative of, of moving toward a plant-based diet for our bodies, for the animal, for the environment. I mean, this is becoming increasingly, you know, this, this information is becoming increasingly disseminated. And, um, and yet, even when people want to make these change, make a change in their lives, they can really struggle to do so. Part of it is because, you know, uh, carnistic agriculture has massive subsidies. So it's just a lot cheaper to eat some of the food that's the most toxic to your body. And, um, you know, part of it is because people buy into this idea that either you're, you know, eating plant-based or eating vegan and you're part of the solution or you're eating animals and you're part of the problem. And we have this sort of like all or nothing mindset which is understandable, but problematic when we're communicating about the issue. We really need to invite people to, I always say, just be as vegan as possible, whatever that means to you. You know what? So I want to ask you this. So in in your, uh, well, not your opinion, but according to your data, how many animals, including fish, roughly do we as a human species eat every every year do you know um i i did know when i wrote it in the book but um i d- my brain does not retain numbers very well okay. so i'm sure it's on a page of the book somewhere okay. though yeah well i can tell you uh and this isn't necessarily from your book but just from some some data that i've read it's somewhere between 70 to 80 billion um animals incredible. A- annually and so my question to you is this. I mean, if we are, you know, in some ways, I'm just going to call it performing this kind of mass murder uh, globally, annually. And you talked about, like, just to put it in perspective, how many how many animals we are killing every day. How how can that be so invisible? Like, how is it that we're not seeing trucks with animals 
you know, during the day. We're not seeing, you know, farms with, you know, all these massive, you know, farms with, with cattle and chickens and stuff. Is it because everything's like undercover and cloaked or what, what's going on? I mean, the vast majority of it is. I think it's somewhere between, uh, to my knowledge, uh, 95 to 98 percent of the meat, eggs and dairy that make it to people's plates globally is from from factory farmed, you know, animals. And so the the main defense, the primary defense of carnism is denial. If we deny there's a problem in the first place, we don't have to do anything about it. The primary way that denial gets expressed is through invisibility. And, you know, carnism keeps its victims out of sight and therefore conveniently out of public consciousness. And so, yes, these individuals are, you know, they're not standing on hillsides grazing. Um, the vast majority of them are not anyway. You know, they're, they're housed in these windowless sheds and remote locations that are virtually impossible to obtain access to. And to be fair, they are transported in trucks with windows along the highway and people pass them every single day. But they pass them and they don't make the connection. They pass trucks of individuals that are literally being shipped to places where they're going to be dismembered in some of the most horrific ways imaginable. And this doesn't even register in most people's consciousness when it's happening because people are so conditioned to be desensitized to the experience of these other individuals and to what's actually happening in the world when it comes to farmed animals, when it comes to carnism. Yeah. We were, I think it was a year and a half ago. It was, it was a, insanely hot day we were we just gone through chicago we were pulling off to get gas and there was a 18 wheel vehicle three decks with goats and the drive my youngest daughter got out and she speaks her mind she's eight years old and she was like you know are, are, the, are you taking these and are you going to be killing them and he said Yes, unfortunately, that's my job. And he had to go like another 500 miles, which would be like eight hours. And it was literally like 95 degrees out. They were making such a stir. And everyone that saw them, your heart just bled for them. Um, and as I mean, I think like another quote you have in the book is I think it's Paul or Linda McCartney that says, you know, if if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everyone would be a vegetarian. Um, but the reality is, is how these animals are kept, shipped around. It is, it is so grotesque. It is so abominable. And the fact that we as a truly empathetic species can allow this to, to go on is it's egregious at so many levels. And so that is why, to me, the work that you're doing and you're raising the awareness, trying to teach people how to communicate with with people that are empathetic, like we are in very sensitive human beings, figure out a way to to have this resonate with them is so vitally important. 
Thank you. And I agree with you. It is, it is grotesque and it is shocking. And many people, you know, who do wake up to the reality of what's happening in the world can find that they start to feel traumatized by it, not yes. simply by becoming aware of what's happening, but then by becoming aware of the fact that the people around them, people they care about, people that they want to maintain healthy, authentic connections with are resisting this information and actively participating in the problem, right? So this is why it's so important for anybody who who really does want to be a part of the solution, you know, and really does want to use their voice or use their energy or just stay awake to this so that they can stay on the path themselves of not contributing to it, engage in, in some really good self-care and really learn about, again, sort of the psychology of not just carnism, but the psychology of what happens to us when we wake up to carnism and you know how we can take care of ourselves. Um, we we talk about this in in some of our SIVA work too, our, our effective vegan advocacy work. I think it's so important, and I can imagine that people listening to this podcast are aware of some of what we're saying. This is not probably for a lot of people not totally new information. And for for you who are listening, I would say thank you. You know, thank you for keeping your eyes and your hearts open and. You are on the front lines of change. You are on the front lines of a, of, a, of a social justice movement, essentially, that's very new and that makes you a pioneer. And what that means is that you really have an obligation to take very good care of yourself, because if you don't practice a lot of compassion to yourself, if you don't learn how to take care of yourself, some of this reality can end up really causing you to suffer. No, you, this is a social justice movement. Big time. You know, there's another quote that you have in the book. It's by uh, Robert Lifton, who wrote a book called The Nazi Doctors. And he says, I think this is so appropriate as far as what we just talked about, how this this whole carnism is so absolutely invisible and under the cloak of of everything that that is visible to the to our society's eyes and that is mass murder is everywhere but at the same time nowhere and they have done they do such a brilliant job just keeping this under wraps and do we just keep feeding this carnistic matrix and we're just so absolutely blind to it 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 it's really an i read your book and i just Ah, it was so infuriating at the same time. It made me want to really like stand up and, and do something about it. And you are, and this is so important. I mean, carnism is a multifaceted problem and it needs a multifaceted approach to the solution. People need to come at this problem for all, from all different angles. If we don't debunk the myth that eating animals is necessary, we're never going to get people to stop eating animals. And of course, large scale change is going to happen not when one individual at a time changes, but when institutions change. And so now, thankfully, we have medical and nutritional institutions finally starting to shift, finally starting to take a different stand. We have businesses, for instance. Mm. My colleague Tobias Lehner has written a great book called How to Create a Vegan World. And in it, he talks about we need, how we need to make compassion easier for people. We need to lower the bar. It's, it's not enough. There are some of us, you know, myself being one of them, when I found out what was going on, I would have, you know, again, it was like 89. There wasn't really great <laughs> vegan food available back then. But at that point, I was like, I would have been willing to eat cardboard for the rest of my life. But most people 
don't feel that way. You know, for most people, um, the bar needs to be lower for whatever reason. We need to make compassion easier for people. So making it easier for people to eat healthy plant-based foods that are affordable, that are good for the environment, that are not harming animals. This is so incredibly important. And, you know, and whatever reason people use to stop eating animals is is a good reason, right? So many people stop eating animals, not because they're concerned with animal welfare, but because they're concerned about their heart health and, you know, physically their heart health, I mean. And, and then once they stop eating animals, they're no longer defensive against information about animal rights issues because there's nothing left to defend. It's really important to appreciate, and I'll, I'll just reiterate this because it's so important, these carnistic defenses become internalized. And people become very resistant to information that challenges what they see as their right to eat animals. So we really do need to, it's not just about raising awareness. It's about communicating in the right way. It's about helping businesses shift their business model from one that's organized around slaughter to one that's organized around, you know, producing healthy foods for the environment and humans. Um, And it's about changing institutions in a variety of ways. You know, we need a major paradigm shift, a major shift in our consciousness as as humans around around carnism. God, we we need we need to kill carnism. We really, we really <laughs> kick <do>. carnism <laughs> to not use a or to yeah, to yeah. move as no. our organization says beyond carnism. Beyond, thank you, because kill is that's that's not a friendly term. We don't want to use that. Um, so you just said we want to lower the bar for compassion. Like, so give me an example of what you mean by that. To make like compassion easier. Yeah. yeah. So, so to, Tobias uses the example of how gluten-free products are really easily accessible now for anybody. And, and very few people actually have celiac disease. But because there were people who are like gluten reducers, you know, people who were not so like sick that they couldn't, they had to um, not eat gluten, but people who were just, I want to reduce my gluten consumption, basically demanded gluten-free products. So now gluten-free products are so available, so easily available that if you want to be gluten-free, it's pretty easy to do so. It's the same thing with eating animals. You know, we have to make it, make the availability basically drive up demand, which for, for, healthy plant-based products, get these products to be more available, hopefully, you know, do some political works. And we really challenge like the meat, egg and dairy dairy lobbies and subsidies to really challenge the subsidization of carnistic products so that they're not so easily available for people. They're not so cheap and make it so that people have easier. Basically, it's about people having easier access to healthier, compassionate foods. Yes. And that's really what it is. What's your opinion of the um, cell-based kind of meats that seem to be really um, getting a lot of funding, kind of getting some traction right now, since it's cell-based in a lab as opposed to an animal that's killed? Are you, you, are you okay with that? I mean, I'm okay with anything that is, um, you know, creating a more compassionate world and a healthier world. And so if, if cell-based meats, you know, can be affordable for people, accessible for people and can replace mass slaughter, then of course I'm all for that. 
Yeah, which I think it can. I think it has yeah. the potential to do all that. I interviewed Ethan Brown from, um, you know, Beyond Meat, mm-hmm. and uh, he's obviously trying to do everything he can to create a burger that mimics meat so that meat eaters don't feel like they're missing out on anything. But that's why, to me, this whole cell-based meats is so fascinating because, to me, it's it's not – maybe they'll be able to grow it and make it in a way where it is it doesn't have as much cholesterol or saturated fat, and so it's a healthier form of meat. Um but maybe not much. So, but frankly, to me, you know what? We need to do this for the planet. We need to do it for the animals. And I think for people that are really, you know, hell bent on doing this because they want to be the healthiest versions of the of themselves, they'll find hopefully something, you know, that's maybe that's uh, in a different category, plant based or something like that. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I so I, I love so many of the quotes and the way you start off so many of the chapters in your book. Uh, I, the, I think it's the second page. It's uh, it's Gandhi and the, the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. And um, and right now, I think it's fair to say that our moral progress is going backwards. It's stagnated and, and we need to make it go go forward. Um, but you, you, you're, you seem to be very, very hopeful about, about the future. I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I mean, we're, we're in a race against time, essentially. We don't, we do know that humanity has to change its consumption patterns substantially if we hope to have a planet to leave to our grandchildren and um, whether we're able to make that change in time or not I don't know but what I do know and what I do see and what does give me hope I've been talking about carnism um, since the book came out essentially the the first version you're you're referring to the 20 uh the 10th anniversary edition right yes yeah I'm sorry I didn't say yes so yes no problem 10th anniversary what came out like two years ago yeah Yeah. it came out in 2020 so I've been I've been talking about this for for you know close to 12 12 years now all over the world I've been to 50 or so countries on six continents having you know this conversation about carnism and what I see over and over again, without exception, everywhere I've gone, is that people really do care. We know that we are hardwired for empathy. Mm. Empathy is, in fact, our natural state. And most people are absolutely horrified when they learn the truth about carnism and do want to withhold their support from it. And I think this is important. Like I said, this world is not going to be saved because one person at a time makes the connection and opens their heart and changes their consumption patterns. We know that. And it's also important to know institutions are made up of people. People are hardwired to feel empathy. And research has shown that that the vast majority of people genuinely want to live a moral life. They want to feel that they're living in accordance with their core moral values, practicing their integrity, which is, by the way, why we go through all of these mental gymnastics in order to eat animals, because we need to feel good about what we're doing, and we don't feel good about what we're doing when we're participating in carnism. So that is hopeful. There are the the movements, you know, the social justice movement, the animal rights movement, and in particular the vegan, you know, the vegan movement, which I would say is a movement within a movement, yeah. um, 
is, is exploding all over the world, uh, again, without exception, whether I'm in Kuwait or Taiwan or South Africa or Lithuania, I hear the same thing again and again and again from reporters in mainstream media and from people running vegan organizations that in the past three to five years, support for an awareness of plant-based eating has just exploded. And that helps me to feel um, quite hopeful. To me, when I look back on when I wrote, like, for example, my first book, The Engine to Diet in 2009, right? right you wrote, when, when you wrote your book in 2010, and I think about how exponentially far we've come in the last decade, that gives me a lot of hope that in another decade, which, you know, and, and as you said, we've got to move at the speed of light here. But in another five to 10 years, it'll be really interesting to see where we are and if we haven't really started to move beyond carnism yeah. um, in, in, in a meaningful, discernible way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. And um, and that is the way the trajectory is headed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, history has shown us again and again that, you know, when enough people speak out you know virtually every atrocity throughout human history was made pop possible by a populace that turned away from a reality that they felt was too painful or just chose not to face and virtually every social transformation was made possible because a, a group of people chose to bear witness and they demanded you know requested that others bear witness as well and this is what we can see happening right now when it comes to this issue with the, with the animals and with carnism and i do also feel that that promoting awareness simply of the word and the concept of carnism is also quite important because it means that you know it stops people from thinking that eating animals is somehow a given it's just the way things are the way things are supposed to be when we name it and we show that this no this is not eating animals does not have to be a given. It is the result of a belief system. And not only a belief system, a belief system that is an oppressive belief system. It's structured exactly the same way and reflects exactly the same mentality that has driven and enabled atrocities throughout the history of humankind. That really changes the conversation when we can recognize carnism and carnistic practices for what they are. That is powerful. That is powerful. And you say that witnessing is the cornerstone of social justice. And, it is an yeah. important piece for sure of social justice. Yeah. So let me, throughout your travels around the world, have you seen a culture or a country or a society that is more vegetarian, vegan, maybe outside of India than it is, um, uh, than, carnistic than it is carnistic yeah oh that's that's interesting i have not personally been anywhere where like veganism is the dominant um practice actually i don't uh, let me think about it i don't think so but i've been to places where that are very very vegan friendly so mm -hmm. i mean tel aviv israel is obviously it's it's carnistic it's not um you know it's it's not a culture that's completely plant-based but i do remember when i was in tel aviv Israel is extremely vegan friendly. And, um, 
And I remember I went to this just mainstream, it was a lunch place where they had probably like 150, it was a bowl place, you kind of make your own bowl. There's a guy behind, a bunch of people behind the counter. And then you just tell them what you want in the bowl. And you've got like 20 proteins to choose from, 20 you know starches, mm-hmm. a bunch of veggies and on and on and on. It's this huge place. And I remember asking, I said, you know, oh, which of these is vegan? And he planted, he pointed to three things. And he said, this, this, and this are not vegan. And I was like, this is just, this is amazing. So Israel's very, very plant forward, we can say. The U.S. isn't doing too badly either in a lot Mm. of places. You go to cities like, you know, you you know, because you're, I think we're around the same age. Things have changed a lot recently. And everybody knows the word vegan. And anywhere you go, you can pretty much get plant-based options. Yeah, we in 2019 right before everything kind of shut down because of covid we went to poland my wife's brother has been in poland for 25 years married a polish woman they have two two sons and we did a trip around poland and i was stunned and amazed at how vegan friendly it oh, was yeah. it wasn't poland you could pull up your happy cow app yep. and you know it pointed you exactly to all the vegetarian vegan restaurants in the area. Yep. We're, 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 we're on our way. We're on our way, but being who we are, we just want it to go faster. (laughs) Yeah, we do. And that's why we have people like you in the world. And that's why we have conversations like this. And, um, and it's, it's great. It's great talking to you. I love what you do. I'm so grateful. And I, I think about this all the time. I remember, I remember back in the day when I first started talking about carnism and I had to, I mean, there was information out there about plant-based eating, but nothing like it is, nothing like there is today. And I would always struggle and I would have to, you know, try to find the best websites to send people to. And it was, you know, always so iffy, but now I'm like, I just, I'm like, Oh, got you covered. Like, there's no question. We have so much great information about how plant-based diets are super healthy and, and really accessible and can be absolutely delicious. Yep. Yep. No, you're right. The amount of resources is phenomenal. And the, the amount of different vegan cookbooks that are coming out, plant strong, plant-based, you know, plant slanted cookbooks. It's phenomenal. That's right. Um, so, and, and, and then, you know, I'm also, you know, getting into the food space now mm-hmm. with a line of plant strong food products and the amount of, the amount of companies that are getting, or I should say even the, your tried and true ones like, you know, Campbell's and, you know, you know, you name it that are now introducing all kinds of plant-based products. It's we're we are literally in the midst of a, a bit of a, I think cultural revolution uh, are getting more plant-based books uh food you know just um i think the word i'm looking for is a zeitgeist you mm-hmm. know i think i think we are in the midst of a zeitgeist and sometimes it's hard for us maybe to see it because we're so entrenched in it but it's definitely happening i agree i agree yeah yeah. So let me ask you this, and I really ap- appreciate your, your time today and for sharing sharing this whole philosophy around carnism and beyond carnism. What Any departing words as far as uh, what you would like people to do, go, uh, how we can be helpful for them as they are 
starting to help themselves and help the people that they love to, to realize that we are um, in a, we're caught in this carnistic matrix that we're mm -hmm. trying to get out of. Yeah, thank you. I mean, first, just a big thank you for people listening and, you know, for people tuning in and wanting to be a part of this conversation and wanting to be a part of this transformation that we're, we're talking about. And, you know, we're, we see ourselves at Beyond Carnism um, as really very much a service organization. We are an organization that is in service. We're in service of this transformation that we're talking about and we're very much in service of people mm -hmm. who are a part of this transformation we want to help you we want to provide you with resources and with tools and with whatever support we can so if you want to come to beyond carnism uh, come to carnism.org we have lots of tools for you to learn about carnism some of them are really bite-sized easily shareable if you want to educate other people mm -hmm. about carnism and we also have lots and lots of tools and services if you want to improve your um, ability to be a part of this change, whether it's your communication or taking care of yourself and your own sustainability or just your education and learning more about this issue and the psychology. What does it mean to be living in this this dominant carnistic culture and um, what does that mean for you psychologically and how can you find a way to be empowered and joyful in this process along your journey and be as effective as possible as you help to bring about transformation and to raise awareness. So come visit carnism.org. You can link from there to veganadvocacy.org. That's our SIVA website. It's, it's, it's linked on carnism.org, but you can also go directly to veganadvocacy.org um, to look at the vegan advocacy resources. And a huge thanks to you, Rip. I mean, you're such a you're such an inspiration, and um, it's so great to be connecting with you. I never thought back in 2017 that the next time I'd see yeah, you yeah. would be <laughs> five years later. Five years later, here in this world now. <laughs> but um, but it's it's a, been such an honor and a pleasure, and I'm so grateful for for what you do. And your passion is palpable and contagious, and yeah. I appreciate it so much. Well, thank you, and right back at you. Um, before you, before I let you go, have you had dinner yet? Um, well, it's nine o'clock here, so I had dinner before I talked to you. You did. Um, can you share with us what you had, if you don't mind, if that's not too personal? No, not at all. I had. Uh, I have to try to remember what did I have. I had some roasted sweet potatoes. I was just kind of like picking for my dinner, and a little arugula salad with lentils and. Um, I think I put chickpea. We have this here, chickpea rice. It's Ooh. rice that's made from chickpeas and nutritional yeast. Yeah, with beans. Uh, so so chick, chickpea rice. I've never heard of that. And how does how do great. you how do you prepare it? Do you it's great. Well, it's actually I think it's like it's little chickpea pasta. It's made of all chickpea flour and it's yeah. pasta, but it's shaped like rice. Okay. And so you boil it and then you drain it and. Um, and it has the texture of like part rice and part pasta, but it's shaped like rice and it's got a lot of protein and it's yeah. bio that's uh, organic. Um, yeah, it's all organic and it's, it's actually great. And is that a product that you bought in Germany and then you, you made it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, everything, cause I'm in Germany. So I, right. yeah. yeah no. So I, yeah. I buy it here. We have a little, uh, 
um, bio lot in the, the organic store. It's like the, the whole foods of Germany. It's much, much smaller called Alnatura and it's down the street and we just go there and get our lots, lots of great vegan stuff there. But, um, the pastas they have are pretty fun. Mm, mm. Well, <clears throat> sounds delicious. Uh, I, I, I haven't had lunch yet, so I can't wait to have lunch. And I'm having leftovers from last night. We made a big old soup, a big old vegetable kind of stew with some really hearty uh, bread. I bet you have great breads in, in Berlin. Too good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Hey, will you give me, hit me with a, a plant strong fist if you don't mind. All right. So one, Where two, three, plant strong. There we are. Wait, uh, boom. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Melanie, so much. Thank you. To learn more or to pick up a copy of Melanie's books, including the groundbreaking Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, visit the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. We'll be sure to add a link in the show notes to this and all of Melanie's resources. Thank you so much for wanting to be an active part of a global transformation so that we as a species can continue to raise the bar and get beyond carnism. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn, Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.